0: The way I see it, Barry, this should be a very dynamite show.
1: It's crazy. When you're writing a Doctor Who sometimes and an explosion goes off, it's really annoying that all they can say is gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my.
2: Listener. This is James Gent of We Are Cult, and this is our first podcast. In this edition, we'll be hearing from Nicholas Briggs from a recording that we made when we went down to visit the Big Finish recording studios back in January, back in the old days, before the lockdown, when they were recording the new Big Finish original series, Human Frontier. And you will be able to listen to Nicholas speak at length about how he devised the series, characters, his writing process, his directing process, and a few insights into the audience. Audio drama as a whole and i think you'll find it very enjoyable to listen to we also have a regular we are cult contributor ken shin who will be talking through some recent books that he's enjoyed including a couple of books from ps publishing and watching books and i hope you enjoy listening thank you very much
1: from big Finish productions <laughs>
2: off earlier today in a textbook launch. Yeah, I, I don't want to be Emergency cryogenic awakening sequence activated. Emergency cryogenic awakening sequence activated it's a planet. At 307 years into a 900 plus journey,
1: it's a planet. <coughs> oh, okay. Previously unknown, very possibly life-supporting, very, very possibly. They
2: said they were setting me free. They don't understand. Are you sure? Orbit fire!
0: It's okay, it's okay. DNA, and a diagram of a human and a star system.
2: Nilly, it's coming back for you. (sighs) What? Nilly? What did you mean? Nilly? Yes, Anna? I'm glad you're with me. Thank you, Anna. The Human Frontier by Nicholas Briggs.
1: Big finish. We love stories.
2: So that's the trailer for the new Big Finish original series, Human Frontier, written and directed by Nicholas Briggs. What now follows is a cut down version of an interview that we recorded during the recordings of the series, which is now available to buy from site as of now.
1: Enjoy! I wanted to explore, I thought about how human beings from different eras are very, very different. I mean, what would it actually really, not in a Doctor Who way, be like? if you had someone from the 1600s suddenly turn up here or for us to really go back there. I think it would be almost impossible for them to relate to each other because their assumptions about life and everything would be... So I thought, well, in a science fiction setting, how would that be? So then I sort of came up with the idea of... um, people traveling to a distant planet, but not being able to go there quickly. So they go into cryogenic suspension. It takes them a long time to get there and they get there and then they find that people have already beaten them to it Mm. uh, and and have all sorts of different assumptions about life, including hating the kind of people they are. Mm. And the other thing I wanted to throw into this is that the people who've gone the long way that was actually secret. So the people who are living on this planet have colonized it, and they've been there for 300 years, when this spaceship, the human frontier, turns up, they think, "Why? Well, if this was happening, we would have known about it, but it was all done in secrets. And it was all, you know, an accident was faked, like they all got killed or something. So, so that's the basis premise of it. And the idea underpinning it is the whole business of, do we really have any free will? And how much are we controlled? Because we all think we know what the world's about, Mm. but all that knowledge we have about the world is all... um we take it on trust secondhand from people, because none of us are physicists. None of us know everything about art or literature or goodness knows what. So we assume a lot of knowledge, you know, and we look back at, say, I don't know, the Elizabethans, that were so funny. They said, some of them believed in imps and demons, but that's only because everyone did and they told them that. Mm. And we believe in loads of things. We believe in the Internet, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's obvious, isn't it? Or is it? I don't yeah. know. Maybe it's a little man outside with a steam engine you know, <laughs> who just follows us around. How do we know? Well, of course, we think we know. But do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then there's the whole thing about the AI in it. The Art and an augmented reality for the people because it's in their brain. And then the idea that it's inside them. Is it controlling them or not? Of course, it's not controlling them. It's there to help them. But hold on a second. They're getting loads of information from it all the time. And that affects how they see their surroundings. So it's all about control. Uh-huh. I've been wanting to do it for three years, eventually I ended up writing it because we worked out exactly when it was going to be released, I think it had been delayed a couple of times, and uh, we said well it has to be out in May, and then I said to our senior producer David Richardson, what's the latest it can go into the studio, and he said well probably by the end of January, so here we are at the end of January, <laughs> so I wrote it for this deadline basically. Um, and. Um, It was a wonderful motivation but all the ideas that had been sort of sitting there I just sort of funneled them through because I think you have to have that um, uh, creative incentive Mm. and that deadline incentive otherwise you know like Douglas Adams you have another bath that have to be locked in a hotel room but instead I just shut myself in my shed. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was about halfway through the process that I hit upon the idea of having the ship called the human frontier had a completely different name. I thought, oh, hold on, I think I'm missing a trick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's another reason for calling it the Human Frontier. I was originally thinking just a frontier planet, you know, as far away from Earth that was the frontier of human development. But yeah, I'm just trying to think. Any, I think some of the characters did change names. I think Daisy Bailey had a less, had a more sci-fi name. But and then I thought I want my characters not to sound like sci-fi characters, really. And then I wanted the people on um, Triton. To sound like nineteen uh, fifties Dan Dare hero yeah. <laughs> like Brett triton. Yeah. Yeah. He just and he's not like that at all. Oh, That's kind no. of what he thinks he is. He's wow. just basically some kind of horrible fascist. <laughs> so.
2: uh, I just wanted to ask a bit about um, your sort of direction style really. I mean it's mm. very interesting sitting in this afternoon, so I noticed you do seem to have a very healthy Sort of two way dialogue between the cast and yourself, you know, yeah. and it does seem obviously quite a creative sort of dialogue you've got going on there. Oh, i you think so. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's good to see. And uh, I mean, and obviously, you've you, know, you kind of been doing this sort of thing in one shape or form, you know, since we, the AVs back in the day. That's right, back so in the 80s. Back wasn't it? in the 80s. Yeah. So has it been like a continual learning curve to get where you are in terms of um, how you sort of feel your way around the production and have that relationship with your
1: actors? Oh, uh, totally, yeah. yes. Yeah, I mean, I would be some kind of total ignoramus and said, no, I learned how to do it in 1982 and nothing has changed <laughs> yeah. since then. No, every time is a learning, a learning. It's a circle, actually. You go around the whole circle of, of doing a production yeah. and you think, ah, and you maybe encounter a problem and you think, I can't deal with that now, but I know that'll be a problem you know, that I can solve next time round, next time I go round the roundabout to do it. What's important is for people to feel creatively free, that sounds a bit airy-fairy and hippie-ish, doesn't it? But, <laughs> but to feel that they are not going to be criticised for chanting their arm and trying something, going further with something, to feel that, you know, I, I'm open to it and not to feel that I'm nitpicking them. Mm. And that's one thing I learned quite a few years ago, is that when an actor makes a mistake not to immediately get on the intercom and say, sorry, I've got to stop you there, you, yeah. you made a hiccup, let them do the whole scene let them carry on because they get in their mind they feel the scene as a complete wonderful thing that they've done rather than something that they kept stopping and starting Mm -hmm. only when you get down to the real nitty-gritty of maybe a mistake that's been repeatedly made for maybe i've written a slightly duff line that requires a little bit of rewriting do you then just do pickups of lines but i'm really i want them to feel that i'm not that i'm serious about it and i'm listening i'm paying attention but i'm not trying to knock them down all the time. i'm not fighting them i'm mm. not and, I'm, and it has to be said that that is precisely what directors unknowingly i'm sure unless they're you know dictators mm. they don't set out to do it but a lot of directors unknowingly make you feel constricted i'm not of the uh, school that you have to make people miserable in order to make them creative mm. I won't do, when I first started directing audio and certainly my early big finish ones, I used to regularly do seven, maybe sometimes ten takes because I just oh, I wanted it to be exactly as I'd heard it in my head and of mm-hmm. course you, and you can't make actors do that because they, they end up, if they're smart, following exactly what you said but it's almost like they're puppets where uh, someone's just dying over there. It. Um, it's like they're puppets, they're being sort of unnaturally moved and they end up saying it in the way you want but it doesn't sound real. Yeah. As a sound designer, I would often go back and find that the first take that I thought I didn't like in the studio was the best take because it sounded like human beings speaking, (laughs) you know. So I know now sometimes I will just do one take of the scene. That's also useful with actors because if they know that I'm going to take one, I might take the first take, then they really step up and they deliver in the first read their best. It's a bit like the principle I was talking about, some... I think, like, people are so used to doing so many drafts of scripts, particularly in television, I think that when they write their first draft, they think, well, that's the first draft, let's see what I make of it. So they don't write anything that is really, really finished. And uh, I know that Barnaby Edwards, who works for Big but we always say that when we deliver our first draft, as far as we're concerned that's our final draft we think that is really finished now inevitably it's probably going to be changed but i think that's a good attitude and likewise to get that attitude into actors like this could be it this could be your only chance more often than not it isn't Mm. but you know what i mean and i think it makes people up their game and and take risks i have a, a thing where especially when you're doing things like wild tracks or extreme scenes it's not to sort of. Be nervous about it as a director yourself, and over-explain it to them. Like there was a sex scene in this, and um, I said nothing to the two actors about it before. And I said, "Here we go. This is all a bit strenuous." I did say that. I said, strenuous. "Let's just have, let's have a go at this," and they just went straight into it and they did it perfectly the first time. I said, "I don't think we need to do that." Again, do <laughs> they were like, you can see that because like, uh, they really went for yeah. it, you know. Oh, and I'm, like, yeah, I'm not going to put you through that because it's all a bit revealing, and, you know. So, yeah, very important. to I mean, they're all really good actors, really vocally good actors and very inventive. And they're not my friends. I don't really know any of them as friends. But I'm in your head, have you got any sort of vision of where you'd like to take this? I have many visions. <laughs> vision. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are many possibilities. We could go from the point the story ends forward. Yeah, I can go forward from that point mm-hmm. or I can go back to when the uh, spaceship first set off from Mars or from when the spaceship first set off from the Earth to... You know or when they first arrived on Triton to colonize it or you know I can tell all those stories or in the extreme future whatever happens with Millie and Dendrick you know um, I've got lots of ideas of potential it's franchise potential well that's yeah. right. I mean and if anyone from Netflix is uh, uh, reading this um, I'm open to offers. yes
2: talking of which big finish originals yeah. each so far each, each of the that you've done on that band
1: have been completely different to one another. Yeah. Is, is,
2: is there anything lined up in the future you tell us about?
1: Well, there's going to be support. a second series of Atta Girl, there's a, an Girl 2. Yes, but nothing else coming. But I would like to say a general thing about the, the originals. I think it's a, an amazing thing that Big Finish and really Jason Hay Gallery's done because there's more of a constantly told, oh, it's standard to just buy things out now, it's standard. And A, that's meanness and and B, it saves people, and it's meanness because it saves people the admin of having to pay royalties. Now, if you're gonna buy a writer, if you're gonna buy a writer's idea and say, that's it, we own it now, mm-hmm. you have to, I think you have to pay them a lot of money. Yeah. A, because that's right, and B, because no one's ever gonna write their best thing if they think someone's just gonna buy it and they'll never benefit from it, not unless they are need it. <laughs> um, I think it's the the right thing for the writer, you know, Big Finish is taking a punt on this because maybe no one will be interested. Hopefully, lots of people will be interested. And they're paying a little bit to some blinking writer, me. Um, but if it does well, you know, I have a stake in the ownership of it as well. All the writers of the originals do. So if it does well, then we do well and we all do well together, right? And I, I think that's a beautiful thing we've done.
2: <laughs> So that was Nicholas Briggs discussing the Big Finish Originals new series, The Human Frontier, which is now available to buy as a digital download from the Big Finish website at bigfinish.com. For our second and last feature for this podcast, I'm now going to hand you over to Ken Shin, a regular whale Cult contributor and a writer in his own right, no pun intended, who will be talking about some books he's really been enjoying during the lockdown.
0: Shen here. A good way of keeping yourself occupied during times like this is reading and I thought I'd just share a few reading recommendations for you. Old and new. Now all of these should be readily available. I will start by recommending a couple of old classics to you. Firstly from the Penguin Classics series we have Perchance to Dream. Selected short stories of Charles Beaumont. Now Charles Beaumont is a very interesting character indeed. He wrote an awful lot of stories for or adapted for things like The Twilight Zone and Thriller, the old Boris Karloff series that is, and you'll find a lot of them in here. He died, very sadly, at a very young age indeed, but he left behind a remarkable body of work and there is a great deal of sinister quality to this. He has a way of catching atmosphere that is quite remarkable and I really wish I could achieve a half of what he does with my horror stories. This contains such wonderful stories as The Howling Man, which was adapted for The Twilight Zone, about a mysterious prisoner in a remote monastery, and why he's being kept the prisoner, and The New People, which was adapted for a television series that Hammer made in the late 60s called Journeys to the Unknown, wherein a new couple move into a nice, posh, upwardly mobile neighbourhood and it turns out that perhaps society is a far greater monster than any werewolf or vampire can ever be. Secondly, also from Penguin Classics, and another American author, I give you the best of Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson, again, is a legendary name in horror and fantasy fiction. He's the guy who wrote the novel I Am Legend, which has been filmed various times as The Last Man on Earth, The Omega Man, and of course with Will Smith, I Am Legend. None of these adaptations have been a patch on the original book, by the way, which I recommend you go and read as well, which is perhaps the best and most practical vampire story I have ever read and contains a hell of a punch, several nasty twists, and really brings the whole threat of an apocalypse that isn't zombie but vampire in your own neighborhood, fully home to you. It is remarkably tough, remarkably human, very good stuff indeed. Now his short stories, a lot of which are contained in these, are also things that bear a lot of reading. We have here stories such as the infamous Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which was again adapted for the Twilight Zone both on television and in the movie film, in which a passenger with a fear of flying sees something on the wing of his jet during a passenger flight. Something that appears to be busy working at disassembling the engines of the plane itself. But is it a hallucination? Is it real? whatever it is, can he convince everyone in time to save lives? We also have another big favourite of mine, Button Button. This was adapted several times, it's been adapted for television, it was made for years back into a very confusing and complicated, unnecessarily so-so film called, I believe, The Box. And it centres around really the question of temptation. A mysterious stranger turns up one day, offers a young couple that aren't doing too well financially, a box with a button on it, hence the title, and advises them that if they press the button, they will get an enormous sum of money. I believe it's a million dollars the original story, which was obviously a lot then and not to be sneezed at now. The downside is that someone that they don't know will die. They are then left with the dilemma of do they press the button or not, and the decision that they make and the payoff that it has as real power. It gets under your skin and it stays there. So those are two very marvellous examples of old horror, but we also need, I think, some representatives of the new names in horror, the people who have appeared in the last decade or so at most. And this, from PS Publishing, is called England's Screaming. This is by a very talented fellow called Sean Hogan. Now, what this is, it isn't unique, but it's the most interesting way I've seen this sort of thing done in fiction. If you're really with stuff like The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, or various crossover stories, even things like the old DC comics where you had what if scenarios where characters crossed over from other universes and Marvel into DC, or vice versa, or what have you. This one, takes the supposition, what if all of the characters in British horror films are real, and exist, and have had their lives played out, and how do they then interact with each other? When you have, and he's one of the main figures in this, John Molar as played by Richard Burton from The Medusa Touch, a man who can affect reality with his faults, how do you control what he does? Can you control what he does? Can you get it to do very unpleasant things indeed, if you can only persuade him? That's just one of the small subplots of this book there are recurring characters in several ways and they interconnect beautifully with each other in ways that you wouldn't imagine. If you wanted to see, for example, the old Amicus Portmanteau films, like The House of Drip Blood, which is one of the examples here, and how they somehow cross-connect into the Hellraiser films seamlessly and thoroughly convincingly, then this is a book to read. It will make you think about a lot of your favourite foreign films again in ways that you didn't before And it's a marvellous narrative in its own right And lastly for now, just to blow my own trumpet This is one you can definitely find an order online And it's called You On Target Edited by Christopher Bryant Now this, for all those people out there who like me Were brought up over the decades from the 1970s possibly through the 90s or so On those wonderful Doctor Who novelisations that Target books put out over those years This is effectively a patchwork of memoirs and reminiscences of all of those books in order by the people who read them. I have a couple of pieces in this book. One is on the novelisation Doctor Who in the Face of Evil by Terence Dix from 1977, and that's a very small piece indeed. It's about a page or so long, which was asked for by the editor at the last minute because no one had done that one basically. But the opening piece of the book is a very long piece indeed by myself on to give it its full title, Doctor Who in an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks by David Whitaker, which was the very first Doctor Who novelisation. It was released prior to Target's release, but it was also the first Target novelisation to be issued. And that for me has a lot of memories. It meshes in a whole area of things as well, like visits to the old shopping centre at the Edmonton Castle in South East London and the WH Smiths there in particular watching not necessarily Doctor Who but Saturday evening television with my family and my maternal grandfather who was a great fan of science fiction and horror and had one hell of an imagination as well. It's very personal stuff as are all of the pieces in the book and again it makes you think not just about the books but about the people who read them and how it affected them and how it still affects them and... It is just, again, marvellous stuff. So there are recommendations for stuff you can order online from either Amazon or various publishers, so I'll repeat that. There's the Penguin Classics, Perchance to Dream, selected short stories of Charles Beaumont. There is The Best of Richard Matheson. England's Screaming by Sean Hogan. You can get that from PS Publishing. And You on Target, which can be ordered either by Amazon or, I believe, by the publishers themselves who go under the imprint of watching books and you should be able to find that online by just searching for watching books and you're on target so there's some lockdown reading for you and i hope some bits of, of interest to you and maybe you must buy to go and read a few of these things so for now i'll just say i tip my hat to all of you most genuinely keep serving the lockdown stay safe and keep yourself happy and entertained look after yourself love you all bye for now well, Come out!